So in this season of Deep Americana, well, I'm going to kind of step back and we're going to give the reins to uh, Wes Unruh. Um, and it's going to be more of a story-based uh, presentation and not as much of a, as interviews. So please tune in, get comfortable, check it out. Without further ado, I give you a Wes Unruh. Hi, welcome to Deep Americana. I am your host for season four. My name is Wes Unruh. And season four is Unrelated Thoughts on Being an Unruly Adoptee. My story. Hey, so let me set the stage. You know, it's uh, the recording of something is always distinct from the writing of something. And obviously the recording goes much after the writing in some cases as now. Uh, so I'm recording this while my son and wife are out of town on the first family vacation they've been able to take since the pandemic of 2020. So it is the 4th of July weekend of 2021, and I have a house to myself, except for the three cats, and a week to read out loud this book that I've spent the last few years writing as a way to sort of get my head around what I've written, maybe debug it with you, um, maybe make sure that people hear it because I can put it out there and you can listen. Um, but also as a kind of therapy, because I think that not just for myself, but for you, because I think my story is traumatic and I think you're going to want to listen through to the end to sort of write it out with me to see where I'm going with this. Um, yeah, so I am an adoptee and I don't want you to turn off this podcast at this point. I don't want you to say, well, this isn't for me. I'm not an adoptee or I'm not related. This is about how we're all actually related. Um, in a sense, this is also about how we become related and uh, I picked the title Unrelated Thoughts years ago, and it just seems to have coalesced more and more over the years as having a lot of layers of meaning. So I'm an adoptee. I am an adoptee. And by that, I mean that I am a sin eater. Um, this is the function of the adoptee in modern society, to be the bearer of sin, not their own sin, to carry the sin carry away the sin of a community, particularly of a couple usually, or to hide that sin from a family, a community, to disappear the sin through kind of like a trick of the mind, a sleight of hand, right? Like all adoptees are sin eaters, essentially, whether we feel it, know it or not. We are laden at birth with a spirit and at adoption with another's transgressions, right, or another's agreements. Somebody made a contract or decided something, and it wasn't like I signed a document. It was my life was dictated by someone else. Uh, there is no way out of that trap of adoption for an adoptee. It's a victimization, if you will. It is what you is and what you have to be. Um, it happens at the direction and will of others. Nor can we really escape the shadow of that sin, for it is a sin that drives the industry of adoption. Um, in other words, adoption as an industry is primarily fueled by the notion of sin within evangelical communities and lifting babies or rescuing babies from that sinful life. So to be adopted is to be driven by what I view as an industry of adoption, um, um, a consumption model of late capitalism that is the end stage and byproduct of a colonialist genocide that has preceded um, all of our generations and which while we are 
in many ways not necessarily responsible for, certainly, but we are certainly both beneficiaries of and traumatized um, generational, generationally by uh, this process, right? Like, I, as an adoptee, am, as a conscious adoptee, if you will, an unruly adoptee, I'm a disruptor. I, I am pushing back against the industry of adoption as I see it because I don't think it's functional um, or that certainly it tends to disappear the true trauma of adoption in a sense that um, it exculpates it from harm, right, as an industry. So I guess uh, all of my life I feel like I've been bad at being adopted and I claim that this badness is in order to be an agitator or a catalyst for cultural change at my most high-minded moments. And at other times, it's the kind of crushing despair that um, reminds me that adoptees are four times more likely than the rest of the population to commit suicide over their lifespan. So, like... The driving motivation to spread a story about being an adoptee or to tell my story isn't necessarily to propagandize an anti-adoption movement because uh, while that's there too, I don't necessarily know that that's helping anyone. But in other words, to give more and more people a, a conversational space in which these notions can be discussed or at least... Um, I, I take a lot of, as I'm recording this, I've been watching Sam Jay, a comedian's show, Pause, on HBO that's recently dropped as a few episodes in into season one. And um, these are conversational spaces where you can, even if you don't feel like you're a part of that space, you can eavesdrop into it. I hope that if you don't know anything about adoption, you don't listen to this and come away thinking that the adoption industry is a horrible tainted cesspool of vulture capitalists because I don't necessarily think it is that, but I do think there are a lot of people who can see it in that way. Um, I feel that you would be, um, that I do need to say that I feel that the way that adoption industry is promoting adoption, and at least the way that it has happened with, in the life of myself and those that I've known, it's always been... Um, about family secrets and about engendering more secrecy, um, about passing, about being as if or almost as, or uh, in cases where that isn't possible, trying to smooth over the edges of the realities of um, racial, transracial identities or racial identities. Um, I also want to say that I think that it's really weird that people think that they can evangelize by getting babies and converting them as toddlers to their faith. Um, if that's why you're adopting, then I wonder, what do you do once you convert them? If that was your end point, then at the point that they're five or six or seven years old and they've decided they're Christians, what else are you going to do? And sometimes I worry about these large families that um, are built by adoption as evangelical engines of conversion, um, what does that do to somebody who's 25 or 30 and they look back on their childhood and they wonder where their identity was, where there's their value? Is that when they have a cascading or catalytic moment where their identity comes apart? Um, anyway, so... It's really easy for me to disassociate as an adoptee, too. Um, I easily fly away into parallel universe, multiple world theory, um, a lot of adoption, adoption fiction is, you know, white guy with magic powers who wonders why he has it, such as Legion or Loki. Um, Loki's different, but um, Legion's a good example, and I'll get into Legion in detail. But... It's the same thing with Moses, who was a adoptee with magic powers, who was a world ender. I'm going to get back to this bad adoptee identity. Um, you know, it comes from the work of Betty Jean Lifton, who is a gifted writer, activist, uh, psychologist, or a daughter of a psychologist and scholar. Who um, uh, she laid, I think she was 
one of the seminal, I hate that word, um, one of the most notable writers um, in the adoption movement. Um, she laid the groundwork for the modern adoptee activist movement, and she articulated this notion of the bad adoptee, which, which is what we see in the Loki, right? We see this adoptee who is empowered with world-ending abilities or is always stuck in world-ending situations. Um, you also see it in Legion with FX. Uh, you, you see it in Heroes um, on NBC. You see it in Luke Skywalker's arc. Um, anyway, you see it in Oedipus Rex. You see it in Moses. So going all the way back to Moses is where she was really keying into it. She talks about it in her 1979 book, Lost and Found, one of the foundational books, um, at, at least in my own maturity as an adoptee, survived what I call the suicidal years, or those years of scarification, um, both psychic and whatever. I'm using this as a term to honor that work, the idea of the bad adoptee, without which I don't think I would have um, put myself back together. Uh, I would have been lost. She is the author. To split out adoptees as performatively good adoptee or bad adoptee is determined by how the adoptee acts. And it was her juxtaposition of Moses as a bad adoptee which helped my thoughts really coalesce when I read it. Uh, in this book, I'm, or in this podcast and in this book that I'm writing, I'm hoping to tease that idea out to examine how the bad adoptee archetype um, both how it uh, influenced me, as I guess as I kept seeking it out over and over again, or kept running across it or tripping over it, um, but also how it has manifested and changed in our popular culture um, by starting with Moses, uh, as he is represented within the film. Um, and I do that for a very specific reason, but I also do it for a sort of secondary reason. Um, is how I saw the Ten Commandments as a child. Um, but also as a stepping stone into um, my own specific experiences. Anyway, so here's what I know about my birth. And I'll get into how I know this later. So this is not something I was told. This is something that I finished putting together about nine months ago. So uh, this is 2021. I was born in 1974. It took me until the year 2020, um, so 46 years, to learn all the things I'm going to tell you in this short snippet. Here's what I know about my birth. I was born on a Monday shortly before 1 p.m. Uh, Nancy, my birth mother, told me I was snatched away, but she demanded that they let her hold me before they took me. When I was born and she wanted to hold me, she was told, that's not the way we do things. And when she demanded that I be given to her for a moment, they reluctantly handed me over. A few moments later, I was taken away, and they turned up the anesthesia, uh, the gas, the, and they left it on until she signed her name to the form to relinquish me. Uh, she was only 17 years old, but apparently they needed her signature to make it legal. But apparently it was certainly legal to keep her under anesthesia until she did sign it. All of this was arranged by her doctor, her father, and her pastor. Um, as I understand it, her intolerant father did not want a grandchild out of wedlock who possibly had Native American blood or Indian blood, um, is probably the way he would have phrased it, uh, as being charitable, and that's based on sort of what I have been able to subtextually glean from my interactions over the years. Uh, certainly, the grandchild out of wedlock was 1973 in Idaho, Twin Falls, the Magic Valley, in Grace Baptist Church. That wouldn't have been kosher. I think my wife would appreciate me saying. Um, so they would not have accepted me into the family. So I guess this adoption was prearranged. So Nancy, my birth mother, um, had been knitting clothing and 
pondering names and um, while she was doing that my maternal grandfather spoke to his pastor I think I'm going to refrain from saying names because both I could get them wrong and secondly this is a long time ago but um, it would have been the pastor in the 73 or 74 and Grace Baptist Church, which I know exactly what church it was because I ended up going to Christian school there when I was a kid um, in kindergarten through uh, ninth grade. So I didn't know exactly who I was related to within the larger church body because I was actually at a different Baptist church. I know it's insular. Let's just say that evangelical and Baptist, Northern Baptist churches, um, small towns, it's a small community, but the reason why people go to different churches is so varied and strange. As a kid, it could seem super important. As an adult, looking back on it, it all seems so strangely petty, but ideally, it seems they wanted me in a Baptist household. They didn't want me in an evangelical household or a Lutheran or whatever else, Catholic, certainly Mormon, was the fear that I would end up in a Mormon household. So they wanted me in a Baptist household, but not one that was attached to his current church. In other words, not one where Nancy could easily locate me. You know, this is a small town, but there wasn't like the internet or anything. And so he found another pastor at another church, and he found Jerry and Karen, who are my adoptive parents, Jerry and Karen, must have appeared to be the perfect family to these pastors. I mean, he was, um, Jerry was a, uh, was an aircraft mechanic, a vet back from, you know, the war. Karen was a school teacher who was trying to um, make a family, I guess, is how they saw it. They were a married couple. And so, um, these pastors made made their plans and approached Jerry and Karen somehow. Um, they had tried to have a couple of their own, which was known, I think, through prayer circles, because the way that prayer circles work in Baptist churches at that time was everyone shared their personal problems with each other as a form of both gossip and sort of folk magic. And then you would meditate or pray um on these issues, um, so somehow these issues were passed around in such a way that the pastors were aware of it, the infidel couples, and oddly when I reached out to the, when I reached out to the pastor, I found my notes right before I started doing this uh, recording a few days ago, and he had mentioned that there was another boy around the same time that he had put in a different family, so I was not the only kid. This was like, I wasn't even the only one he had thought of at the point where I contacted him when I was trying to put this all together in the late 90s. Um, so I raised that in case there is a boy who was born in 1974 in Twin Falls, Idaho, in Magic Valley between, say, March and July. Um, and he would probably push through the same church. That'd be so weird if you ran across it on this podcast. I'm not even sure if I'm going to finish putting it together and putting it out there. Yeah. So, um, apparently they hadn't even looked into adoption, but everything seemed to fit neatly into place. And so a lawyer was found somehow between the pastors uh, to arrange the deal, except for Nancy, who um, had no idea this was going on, apparently until she was confronted with it. So she was forced to give me up. She had been trying to save money. She'd been working for months to save money and had clothes that she was putting together. That's how I understand it. Then again, this is all stuff I'm putting together. I'm basing my prior narrative on all of these stories and bits of story. And as I'll get into it, you'll understand why I say that it's hard for me to even trust what little bits that I've gleaned and gleaned and gleaned. And I think might be true, but, you know. Anyway, such is life. I had no idea how complicated this story would get 
when I first tried to set out and figure out <laughs> who my biological mother was and who my biological father was and how weird that would get along the way. So I started out 25 years ago now. It took me 23 years to find my biological father and it took me 17 no, it didn't take me 17 years. It took me about 10 years to find my biological mother. I have theories about that. I'll get into that deeper in here, too. But um, anyway, as I said, after they, after she had given birth, and again, I have trauma. I have PTSD, but I also have CPTSD. I have complex pre-verbal trauma from the day I was born and at uh, other traumatizing points in my life. So I disassociate, as I've mentioned earlier in this. Um, I'm now 20 minutes in, and I have yet to uh, finish explaining the day I was adopted. So bear with me. After giving birth, they gave her the gas, as I mentioned. Um, under, the dress, under the dress of that gas, of that medication, if you will, and signing those papers, um, which I learned only two years ago, a year and a half ago. Jerry and Karen would have never known that she did that she wished to keep me. They were told that her name did slip um, when I was twenty six, twenty four, or twenty six. Karen told me that she heard the name Nancy from the lawyer when they were signing the papers and that she was pretty sure that my biological mother's name was Nancy. So that's when I got that tidbit of information. So Jerry and Karen did not know that Nancy wished to keep me. Um, interestingly, they did know that uh, the lawyer's secretary had dressed as if she had given birth to me and was wheeled out of the hospital by the nurse while the lawyer walked alongside her as if he was the father, an image which weirdly stuck with me for a very long time. has stuck with me ever since, honestly. Um, and it always seemed weird that Karen didn't see that as evidence of criminality, just as sort of uh, amused by the anecdotal detail. So several hours after my birth, the lawyer uh, came with his assistant, uh, bringing with his secretary. Uh, he put her in a wheelchair. I lay bundled at her stomach, apparently, smuggled out of Magic Valley Regional Medical Center in Twin Falls, Idaho, on April 15th of 1974 at about, oh, I figured two, three, four, maybe five in the afternoon. They said I was there the day I was born before the sun went down so certainly before six in the evening so that's the story of how I was I guess stolen from Nancy how I was adopted um, Jerry and Karen said that I uh, didn't cry that night um, by that evening I lived in a house with unfamiliar adults right like Jerry and Karen laugh at what a good baby I was in those early days. Um, I remember Karen telling my wife, Shira, I kept wondering, is he still there? And kept checking on me because I wasn't crying. I was just laying there staring into space um, for the first few days. Uh, but I guess that gave them an unrealistic understanding of what a baby was, because when they adopted my sister, who was also young, but not as young as I was, they adopted her when she was about three weeks old. She was a crier. She never really stopped crying when she was first adopted. I remember vividly her screams and I later learned from adoptee research that newborns were often drugged with tranquilizers before being handed off to their new, owner, new owners, uh, particularly during what is called the baby scoop era. So that would have been from the end of World War II until the end of the Vietnam War, right around the time of the uh, 1978 Indian Child Welfare Act, which for a long time, I always thought that I would have been an illegal adoption 
if that had been the law, and I'll get into that in more detail. Um, I do know that my family always thought I had Native American blood in me. I found out in 2003 when I found my birth mother that she assumed I had Native American blood in me and wrote the only letter that I received from her by mail that at the time that I that she was impregnated, that she had a Native American boyfriend. So it was a shock to me when I did do the DNA test and ultimately found my uh, biological father who was perplexed to learn uh, that I existed. Um, but I <laughs> that too. So... Um, he also was not Native American. So it was around the time I was 42 that I finally came to terms with the fact that I had been inadvertently lied to most of my life uh, about who uh, I was and where I came from. Yeah, uh, varying layers, right? So anyway. Where I came from didn't matter for them, for my adoptive parents. They believed I was an answer to their prayers. And so, you know, it was Karen had been told that she was infertile. Even in my first few hours within their household, they began praying over me, asking that their God protect my eyes, my ears, my fingers, my toes. I know they believed they were doing the right thing in adopting me, that they were saving me from what they assumed was a sinful existence of bastardhood. Um, I don't want to get into Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 3 just yet, but I will say that that verse does come up in my adolescence. Um, the prayer that they recollected to me throughout my childhood, and they chided themselves for not having prayed over my teeth, which they attributed to a myriad of dental problems that characterized my youth and not quite honestly in my life. Um, I kind of think it might be because there wasn't a lot of fluoride in the water in Twin Falls, Idaho in the 70s, but I think it was because they didn't pray over my teeth. So at numerous points throughout my life, they've brought up this failure of theirs as if God is a jinn, sort of seeking to exploit loopholes in the prayers to maximize the suffering of his followers. Or, I mean, that's an uncharitable way to see it, I suppose, but... Their belief in my divine appearance as a miracle granted to them through God by way of their church anchored my life to the evangelical community, like at its heart. And like all religious-based adoptions, this practice reifies, and I'm going to use that word inadvertently a lot because I like the word, it fortifies, if you will, the family within the religious space. It is a binding practice meant to erase identities, like erase cultural identity, erase traditional histories, literally erase a name and replace it with a different name and assert dominance over future generations. Like my kid has the last name that I was given, right? Not, not the one, f anyway, so, um, so that's a weird too, but I feel like so like I own my name now in a weird way, <sighs> or I begrudgingly have taken over my name's space. I don't know. However, in my case, I was taken from an evangelical community, <laughs> a, a Baptist one, and brought into a different one, and then put back in the first one because it was such a small community, and then people wandered around bumping into each other, and I was left to have to make sense of all that. And to me, it felt like a mixture of some sort of, like, Brazil and the Truman Show. Like, if you're a movie buff, you're in for it, because I'm going to make a lot of references. Um, Dark City, you know, uh, the 13th Floor. All of There were a number of movies that came out just in 1997-98 that really kind of got me deep into doing this search and thinking about who I was uh, and what the nature of, like, identity actually was, even movies like Existence. All right, so that's enough deep dive. But in my story, 
it's in a deep dive rabbit trail, disassociating. In my story, this meant that it resulted in Nancy, a traumatized 17-year-old who was my birth mother at the time, was left without the ability to find me and without the legal recourse to do so. So my adoption was local. It wasn't done through an industry. Um, there are a lot of people who have been adopted through Catholic services, Catholic charities or services, Bethany. Um, there's there's the, all of the Gladney adoptions that were illegal in many ways. There's um, a whole host of different ways that people get adopted. There's public adoptions or state adoptions, I guess. There's um, people who move through foster care and into families where they might be adopted. But when you're talking about babies, or you're talking about people who are adopted the day they were born, there is a trauma that happens to people who are moved away from their mothers in those moments. I mean, so there are things that I can't watch. I, uh, I can't bring myself to watch uh, The Handmaid's Tale, uh, the television series right now. The traumas that are shown in that are too um, vivid for me because I've spent probably most of my uh, childhood wondering what my mother was doing, how I got disrupted or placed or left behind or I don't know. So, um, so that kind of narrative is really difficult for me to engage with, so I'm not doing it. But, um, but it also means, you know, my story is not universal, but it's not unique. Uh, there are other narratives or other ways to approach these issues. I hope more and more that those um, narratives are being sculpted and crafted by people who are adoptees, that are listening to adoptee voices, who are the actual experts on what it is like to be in a, to experience adoption, whether that's um, someone who grew up in foster care moving into an adoptive family, or somebody who is of one race growing up in a, a family of another, um, and the complex issues that that can present within that framework. I was somebody of one race, raised in a family of that race, was believed to be of another race at times, and sort of awkwardly treated like that by the exterior and outer family, but I'm not sure that my adoptive family ever treated me differently. It's hard to say because there is no model or map against which for me to measure. But I do know that internally, I internalized a lot of things, and a lot of things I didn't fully understand, and a lot of things that, I mean, again, I did spend most of my adult life and childhood believing I was Native American in sort of a quasi, you have a grandmother who's a, you know, Cherokee princess kind of thing. That's not quite the same. It was that I wasn't allowed into one family because I might have had the bloodline of the local native, uh, which at, uh, in, in Twin Falls, I think was Bannock Shoshone. Um, I, I'm, I, I am so... <sighs> Couple hour, a couple, what am I, 30 minutes into this? A little deep into uh, this disgorging, but let me back up for a minute. So when I was born, again, like I said, I was stolen from my mother, a doctor, two pastors, a lawyer or two, and at least one secretary got deeply involved in making sure that I was not left alone with that young woman. I mean, one minute I was there and the next I was gone. So it's real easy for me to dissociate and to think about all of these things and about what it means to me. But at the core of this, there was a young woman, my mother, Nancy, deeply traumatized, shamed, treated like shit, and she wasn't allowed to keep me. It, it happened quickly. It happened under the stupor of postpartum analgesics. I was displaced from my biological family. Minutes after birth, and those who adopted me remember my silence, shock at the displacement, as I never cried at all that first night. Well, I mean, on reflection, I imagine I lay awake, 
straining to hear my mother's familiar voice. I mean, I had heard her voice all the time up to that day. I do, I fought for and somehow I vaguely feel I can almost remember her long hair again that I know I had glimpsed in those first few moments of sight after birth. But, you know, I, I, I hear that you're not supposed to be able to see that. It feels like a memory I've constructed out of wish, but it seems real. I realize that if you were to compact all this, right, this is a podcast. It's meant to be a log line, a two-sentence description of my life story. I'm some sort of role, some sort of novel. I don't feel like I'm Dick, Dicksonian or Roald Dahl novel, maybe Philip K. Dick. A plucky but delightful bastard boy who sealed his fate and scaled his way out of spurious circumstances to scold foolish adults who surround me bartered me and abused me uh, i mean it must sound like that in addition to these things i arose haughtily out of a giant peach or glass elevator to smugly win this prized life I had urgently been disallowed i don't think i wanted to be in these communities or families i think that's one of the things that adoptees are gifted and an adoptee is sort of an occulted object uh it's occluded it is uh it's uh, adoptee isn't a person or a human being it's an object who's been moved or they or she has been moved off of uh, sort of a family's playing board disallowed this this entity is a non-entity it is not part of the family right and so we'll rewrite its name and we'll pass it off and it will have disappeared so um i suppose some of my stories sound this way even to me that um the fiction like robert jordan's book the wheel of time series right like the the main one of the main characters in that is an adoptee who in discovering his truth it sort of unmakes the world or remakes it around him it literally warps reality and causes luck to change for others um so those are the stories that i really gravitated towards because it always felt to me like i was this um, occult object uh, a black hole emanating energy and that seems like a strange stretch right a weird flex but um you know like names mean things and there is a scientist named bill unruh who uh identified radiation that emanates from a black hole which is called unruh radiation and as a poet it is hard to disentangle that from how i see the adoptee as an occult object or the occulted object or identity yeah anyways so my true name was probably something like blank harper or baby boy harper on the document prior to my original birth certificate being rewritten by the state of idaho so Stories like this about adoptees, I mean, you know, This Is Us, I've been binge-watching season four of This Is Us, probably, I don't know if that's healthy, but it's a thing I'm doing in the moment. Um, these stories that we tell each other, that we show each other about adoptees, are fun and familiar because they sit within a larger trope, right, that we're used to, this cultural theme of the bad adoptee, or, of course, um, none of the world doll characters are bad per se they were the heroes of their stories but adoptees and stories are bad uh, i mean by bad I, I mean moses is bad you know moses is certainly bad if you are um the pharaoh and he's moses has come along and completely obliterated your uh entire social structure uh, moses is good if you were, were once a slave and are now part of the freed 12 tribes um but moses himself is bad and that god ended up punishing him he never gets to see the promised land and 
And Moses is good in that he brings the Ten Commandments, um, one of the Ten Commandments, of course, being thou shalt not lie, the second being honor thy father and mother, um, both of which Moses said broken before he ever got the Ten Commandments. I mean, if you think that his father and mother are the Pharaoh, um, you see where I'm going with this. Adoptees are often placed in these impossible positions. As a Baptist youth growing up, feeling that lying was a sin, being taught not to lie, but also feeling at some point that I wasn't really who I was supposed to be because my name wasn't really what it had started out being, was something I came to consciousness pretty early on about. Um, and then sort of thinking, well, am I being lied to? Uh, but if I'm being lied to by people who tell me not to lie, how do I deal with that? Where does the edges of evil or um, malignancy begin and sort of the sort of um, what we want to call little white lies, right? Like uh, I use that nomenclature deliberately. Uh, this notion in culture that we can keep each other from being uh, impacted by something by lying about it so that they don't feel the emotional trauma of it in the moment. I mean, that's basically the... Uh, I find myself pulling back from profanity. That is the sort of packaging and the foam uh, surroundings of the narrative an adoptee is given from them if they are told they're adopted from the time that they are young it is this uh we don't quite know what to tell you so we'll fill in what we can say that we think won't hurt your feelings or won't bore you too much but if that's the foundation that you set and you never grow beyond that if you just keep adding to that then at some point, that is a fabric of lies that an adoptee, myself, and others that I've known, find themselves tearing down, uh, ripping apart, maybe um, coming out of. There's a term called FOG, which is an acronym. It's uh, I will go back to my notes and find it later in this, but it's an acronym that stands for Fear, Obligation, and Guilt. And... Um, I often think of fogs, so I often think of shame, too. But uh, adoptees will talk about coming out of the fog of adoption. Um, that that phraseology started uh, with people talking about coming out of the fog of domestic abuse and gaslighting and um, that kind of trauma, but adoptees, I think, wisely have uh, embraced that terminology, and I see a lot of people talking in those ways, so... Tearing apart the lies, the soft lies, the, the white lies, um, if you will, of one's childhood, coming out of that fog is an essential part of individuation. Most people individuate when they're, you know, 16, 20, 15. Late discovery adoptees, and in fact a lot of adoptees, um, find themselves individuating, I think, much later in life. I don't think I finished until I was in my 30s, you know. Uh, um, astrologers will say that it's when your Saturn returns. When you're 29, you can assume that you're fully individuated. Uh, I remember being 29 and a half and thinking to myself, <laughs> Yeah, I'm still neck deep in trying to figure out who I am, because at that point I was still doing the adoption search pretty solidly. I guess what I'm learning now uh, is that what I am is somebody who's always trying to figure out who they are. Maybe I can help other people along the way, but it's not like I'm going <laughs> to... I guess in my 20s, I thought, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to write a book. People are going to dig it. In my 30s, I thought, I'm going to figure this out. Maybe I'll write a book. Uh, in my 40s, I figured it out. I was like, man, this is this is just this is just like a huge, glorious, absurd tragedy. <laughs> I don't know if I need to write a book. Like, I don't need to spread that trauma. But I don't know that it's trauma. It's funny. 
Life is funny. Their goals, their intentions, their ideas, their moral and ethical attempts to be superior. I'm not talking about just myself uh, in this situation around my adopters, but like I'm talking about uh, adoption industry and the stories that we tell each other. People decide to adopt to get rid of children, to take on children. All of these decisions are being made in voids. Those children don't know what those decisions are. Those children often don't even reflect on those decisions. Uh, if they do, they do it when they're much, much older. Um, but adoptees are always going to be a grain of sand that pushes against the others in their environment, the kept. Right, so the the adoptee does not fit in. It doesn't have the shape or texture or uh, of the community that they're being brought into. Um, they're forcing a movement out of the other grains around them. Um, adoptees create disruption and chaos in the places they were displaced into. And so these stories are everywhere in our culture, in every genre. Uh, children's stories, horror, comedy, and particularly tragedy, even like arguably the earliest, uh, most important tragedy in classic literature is Oedipus Rex. Um, again, Moses' story. But um, even contemporarily, where I'm watching the storyline in season two of The Owl House play out with King looking for his dad. Um, and King <laughs> arguably is another bad adoptee are declaring himself king of demons in season one so the bad adoptee sits everywhere is this consistent trope of difference so my last name the one given to me my adoptive parents is Unruh I've been told it means unquiet or unruly, that it is German for a restless or quarrelsome person. It also could mean those who are being moved out of or onwardly moved. So family lore has it. So when the German immigrants came over to the United States in the late 1890s, their passports were marked unruly or unruly, presumably a warning label for the immigrants being sent over and the bureaucrats interpreted as last name. And that is the myth about how all of the unruhs came to be across the U.S. So, I am unruly. I was born as a disruption to a mother who wanted to keep me and given to a quarrelsome family who unironically treated me like Moses, both as a sign of their deliverance from being a childless family and also as the ungrateful child who should be more thankful of being rescued from the deplorable woman who would dare to give me up. And they did not know her story. So I was seen as being a symbol of sin because both my birth grandparents and adoptive parents thought of my existence as a testament to the shame of sexual intercourse. So over the years, I've come to love my last name because I am indeed a bit unruly, noisy, noisemaker, unquiet. Despite how I came to buy the name, it does fit. I am unruly, a bad adoptee. And um, I want you to go back to uh, what I said earlier about the good adoptee, bad adoptee dichotomy. It was first laid out by Betty Jean Lifton, as I said, in her 1979 book, Lost and Found, The Adoption Experience, where she describes the bad adoptee as the one who rebels against placement, who needs to know to search to find a place in the world beyond the one they'd been assigned. She devotes like a full chapter, chapter nine, to a rather flat understanding of good-bad within a narrow framework of adoption as an institution. Um, I mean, in this book, but I, I want to use her work as a starting point for a deeper discussion of what it means to be that bad adoptee. Um, I think in this podcast, I'm going to be really digging into that too, in sort of asides and notions from the text. I imagine that... Um, if you're listening to me, you may either be an adoptive family member, if you're listening to this, or um, a prospective adoptive parent, perhaps. Perhaps you um, are trying to understand the choices that you're made or you're planning to make or trying to figure out 
what impact you might have in someone else's life who uh, has a dramatic age difference from you and can't really communicate. Hmm. You may be someone who has never really been touched closely by adoption, which means you might be listening to this thinking, well, that's fucked up and weird. I apologize. I won't always be cursing, and I'll pull back when I can, but it'll go there sometimes. Most adoptions are great, though, you might be thinking. Well, find them. Find the adoptees that have great adoption experiences and put them out there and have them talk to each other. Um, I'd love to hear those conversations in public. I don't want to hear people talk about people they know. I want to hear the people, the adoptees themselves, talk to each other, other adoptees, about their lives. You may be a birth mother or a father who gave up a child or one of any mad mixture of any of these. For any number of reasons, who knows, um, what it is like to make the choice of giving up a child for better or worse, uh, I can't know that. I can only know my own experience. Uh, I can try to seek out and listen to others. Um, so I do hope that if you're in any one of these categories or if you're a fellow adoptee, uh, you know what it is like to have the world always look a little different for you, I suspect, than it does for others, the kept. Um, but I've also found that there are so many different kinds of adoptees and foster situations that my youthful resentment and sort of anarchic uh, kickback against the idea of adoption industry en masse um, is, is a little flat as well, right? Like we have to understand what works for people and what doesn't work for people and dear Lord, let's all talk to each other and try to figure out if we can make it better over time, right? Others, as you know, see the family around them as related. What does it mean to be related when you're an adoptee and you meet people that you're related to that you don't feel related to? <laughs> right? It takes time to build those relations up. And then, or if you have related, interrelated experiences with people that you're not related to that are much stronger, is that how you build family? I hope that. Uh, Listening to this first episode of me talking through um, my very, very insular and unique experience is enlightening in some way. I hope that it helps you feel interconnected with other humans, maybe from whom you were reproduced or whom you reproduce. Uh, For an adoptee, the artifice of life is always being called into question. I'm going to wrap this up with a sort of a tight thought. There's a there's this movie from 1998 called The Truman Show with Jim Carrey uh, that is worth your viewing if you've never seen it because it's going to be something I reference later if you continue listening to these episodes. It is the view of an adoptee or it is a viewing of an adoptee who discovers he's an adoptee late in life and discovers that he's the center character in a reality television show and that he was adopted by a corporation, which is using him to uh, fuel their entertainment broadcasts that are going out 24 hours a day. In 1998, it was commentary on reality television. Now it just feels like a really bizarre pitch for a streaming service. But one way or another, it's a movie that um, really helped me in the moment. And I think Jim Carrey did a lot of <laughs> great work in that film and in other films <sighs> in many different ways uh, to exhibit both the shadow self, like in the movie Mask, uh, as absurd as that is, um, to talk about what is identity, which was something that came through really interestingly in uh, Man in the Moon, the Andy Kaufman biopic that he did. Um, 
which also has an adoptee connection. But you know, the Truman Show is really the core of of his films that I feel like uh, were important in the 90s. On that note, here's what I mean by that. The Truman Show brings me back. Being an adoptee, you know what it is like to have no real sense of identity and to feel like your world might shift at any moment because your very existence seems so fragile. Um, if you are an adoptee and you're listening to this, maybe you're an adoptee and learned about the circumstances of your adoption later in life, maybe in adulthood, like in The Truman Show, making you feel mistrustful of those around you. Or if you're an adoptee, you may have turned out fine by the luck of who you were given to or personal work you did at some point in your life. However, if you are an adoptee, you know what I'm talking about. Um, my podcast, my book, my writing is not science. I'm more of a poet than a researcher. Um, I do not claim to have a deep longitudinal study of how adoptee children adjust and understand the world versus who children, you know, stay with their birth parents, the kept. There is, of course, no way to do this study because there are so many variables between nature and nurture that form the complete portrait of who a person becomes. And so much is just sheer random chance or um, determination and will and chance. But just because there is no way to do a study does not mean that there are not some serious and troubling ramifications to removing the child from their birth families. Adoptees struggled with higher suicide rates than their non-adoptive counterparts. They also have a higher incidence of drug abuse. So just because we can't study a thing doesn't mean that there isn't something to be studied, to be improved upon via science, compassion, and empathy. In doing this, I'm not really advocating, like I said, an end to all adoptions. Adoption serves a purpose in a world where not every child is able to have a birth parent raise them. But we don't need to erase their names and identities and histories in doing so. In a world where there are plenty of couples who would like to raise that child, they are more than welcome to provide a life, guardianship, legal sponsorship, but stop erasing identities. As I will continue to explain throughout this podcast, future episodes, and as I write the book I intend to write, adoption is messy. Part of the goal, then, is not to cast aspersions on the choices made by well-meaning individuals, but to call attention to the injustices and traumas that occur in order to serve those well-meaning individuals. In other words, and in truth, I am baffled and eternally grateful for the series of events and individuals who led the way for me to be where I'm at today, in spite of, despite, or perhaps because of the struggles I endured early in life, and I owe my scars as memories of recovery and strength. But in the abstract, the adoptee is a reminder of the import of state-run identity. The adoptee sits within the assumption and legitimation of identity, as an adoptee, I was never permitted to have identity in a legitimized way. It's always under attack. There's always this moment in the back of my mind that I wonder, could I be deported? There are adoptees who are deported, who don't realize that they are not citizens of this country, having grown up here all of their lives. There are adoptees who maybe find out that they're not the age that they thought they were or that their uh, race isn't what they thought they were, for example. For instance, as I understand it, it is a felony in the state of Idaho for me to have a copy of my birth certificate, my original birth certificate. And yet, you know, technically, that is the one document necessary to travel through life, to acquire subsequent documentation, like marriage certificates and passports and driver's licenses. What I get is an amended birth certificate, not the original one, not the real one but one that has uh, people that I am provably biologically not related to, which I can show with my DNA research on 23andMe, Ancestry.com, and Heritage, I think, DNA.com. Uh, so I have proof, and three different points of proof that I'm not related to these people, but never mind that. I have a state-issued lying document that says that my... Uh, adoptive parents are my biological parents. So 
alternative documentation, such as that certificate of live birth, then becomes questioned, right? Like that was the essential question in 2008 when I was thinking about writing this book. I was watching Barack Obama's citizenship get questioned by conspiracy theorists over the notion of the certificate of live birth, which is exactly the document that I get as an adoptee when I request my birth certificate. Anyway, courts can unseal the document, I guess, but it is a practice that is both expensive and time-consuming, and apparently they have to go there in person, which is, means going back to Idaho. Uh, I live in Georgia, and it's only rarely successful for adoptees to pursue it. I guess, I suppose if you throw enough money at it, or you're a famous adoptee, you might be able to unseal your records, and more power to you if you've reached that stage in your life. But Identity is about more than a legal construct. Identity becomes all artifice when it is not tethered to anything more than the random chance of the family you were given to. And so when an identity is held tenuously, it's an injury itself, right? Like when identity is itself the first injury, individuals will find challenges to identity and authority as a kind of re-traumatization and suffer accordingly. Um, I was described as the baby who didn't cry when my adoptive parents had me on the first night I was alive. <sighs> Perhaps I didn't cry because I knew even that first night that the person I'd been crying for was never going to come for me. So this podcast and this book is my story, or at least what I dare tell or try to articulate, given the constraints of the lives through which I am enmeshed. I am a bastard. I am an occult object. I was born to a woman out of wedlock, and then I was stolen from her. I was hidden within the uh, sort of the second layer of her community, um, and there I grew up um, an occultist over time because I became a personal conspiracy theorist, right? My very own identity was a conspiracy theory. So from that first theft, right, spirals many experiences that would never otherwise have happened. Uh, spent years wondering who my father might be, if my mother and father were still in touch, if they both knew I was alive, that I existed. We'll get into that later. This lifelong contemplation has led me to certain insights, many of which I hope to impart in the upcoming podcast episodes. Hope you understand that adoption... The adoptee trauma is that first whirling scar. It's the navel. It is root trauma. And exploring that trauma opens up the psychic self to ticks and leeches, parasites, both online and in personal life. Adoptees who dox themselves, put themselves out there telling people when they were born, the day of their birth, what they know about their lives. They're basically magnets for weirdness and strange luck. Um, adoptees wind up in unexpected places. <laughs> we run into each other in unexpected ways. Um, I really do wish that when I run into Keenan, uh, Keegan-Michael Key that I realized that he was an adoptee too at the Peabody Awards. Uh, so we adapt to life experiences like chameleons, right? Hiding our injuries like cats, and nearly all of us are animal lovers or hoarders of stuffed animals. Adoptees aren't like anyone else. We're not like the kept. And we're only like each other in our similarities of trauma and disconnectedness. So my fellow adoptees, particularly the self-acknowledged bastards, are iconoclasts. Many are autodidactic experts in rather obscure state laws and politicians, if they're really deeply into it. Or at least this is true of the older adoptees. The younger ones tend to be either unaware or struggling with mental health issues, which are really related to their earliest memories and experiences, or they're self-conscious and still establishing their lives before examining how those lives intersect with larger social structures. Um, sadly, adoptees tend to die sooner statistically than the rest of the community. Uh, adoptees who engage in activism around changing adoption laws and cultural perceptions are a subculture, and like all subcultures, is a dynamic and engaged community with many conflicting personal opinions and deeply felt aesthetic considerations. So um, encountering this, particularly online, can be an overwhelming experience for someone seeking to understand their own adoptiness. Um, so 
So uh, I'll leave it at that. Um, Hopefully I can make this podcast an ongoing safe space community-wise so that uh, once I'm done telling my story, other people can jump in. I know there are other podcasts out there that adoptees can listen to that deal with adoptee stories. I'm not trying to tread on anyone's toes. There's awesome ones out there. At some point, I will compile a list um, or do a podcast episode specifically about the ones that I've taken value from. All that said, thanks for listening to all of this. There's more to come. This is just episode one. My name is Wes Unruh. Uh, My birth name was probably Baby Boy Harper. (laughs) In my fantasy world, my birth name was probably Elliot. But yeah, my name is Jeffrey Wes Unruh. I was born on April 15th, 1974 at the Magic Valley Regional Medical Center in Twin Falls, Idaho. And I was adopted that day against the wishes of my biological mother, even though she signed the papers, because that's what it was like in 1974.